For our scripture reading, we turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, I'll read verse 1 to verse 8. page 5 in the Pew Bible, and if you'd like to follow along also in the Forms and Prayers book on page 202 and 203, as I work through the sermon, I'll be citing some of the question and answers from Lord's Day 2 and 3, uh, because they certain, uh, certainly apply to our uh, scripture text uh, for us this evening. Let us now hear God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing in a time of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we come before you once again, asking that your Holy Spirit's Illuminate our hearts and minds to not only hear this word, but to understand and believe it, to receive it in faith, and that, O oh Lord, you would help us indeed to see our corrupt nature, but more than that, O oh Lord, help us to see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace that is greater than all our sin. And so may you, O oh Father, teach us from your living word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the sermon notes, you'll notice that there are four points, and they're really an outline of five verses. So my, my sermon text is going to be verses 5 to 8. And 5 to 8, you'll notice there that the Lord saw the corruption of mankind. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. The Lord chose to blot out the corruption upon the earth. And the Lord saw the faith of Noah. Noah found favor in God's eyes. You notice point 1 and 4 that the Lord sees. Yes, he sees, first of all, the corruption of mankind. But he also sees that there is a man, a man of God, whom he bestows his favor upon. He bestows his grace upon. This Noah has faith in God. You see, friends, 
God created the heavens and the earth. You've probably learned that all of your life if you grew up in the church. Yeah, Pastor, you're speaking to the choir. You're preaching to the choir. But don't we need to hear that more than ever today? God created the heavens and the earth. God created man in his, in his image. Male and female, he created them. Don't we need to hear that more than ever today? Be reminded of that more than ever today? Because I dare to say that people in your position who have grown up in the church have heard that over and over and over again, and yet now maybe they're questioning that. Because I dare to say that none of us are immune to that way of thinking. God, the triune God, created the heavens and the earth. It is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, when he created everything, said, it is good. It is good. He created man, Adam and Eve, in his own image and in his own likeness, and he said, it is good. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with the glory of God that image bearers of God would fill the earth, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden would spread out, the earth would be populated with God-fearing human beings created in God's image. They were good in God's eyes. God created them as the Lord's, as the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, In Lord's Day 3, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good and in his own image that is in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. God created man good and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, but we know what happens. They fall, Adam and Eve fall at the instigation of the devil. We see that in Lord's Day 3 again. Where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Adam and Eve spiritually died and eventually physically died. Cain murdered his brother. And at chapter 5, we have an interesting narrative. We have Adam and Eve having another child. Eve gives birth to Seth. Eve gives birth to Seth. And Moses provides a genealogy from Adam to Seth to Noah. And then at chapter 6, At chapter 6, we read a very difficult and challenging passage here. Look with me in your Bible. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
Who are these sons of God? And who are these daughters of man that they married? Interpreters have thought or have believed that these sons of God were good angels that have married human beings, women. But the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that angels do not marry or are given in marriage. So scratch that one. Some believe that the sons of God are princes or kings. That's possible. But a more convincing interpretation is that the sons of God are the godly seed from the line of Seth. The line of Seth that is written out for us in chapter 5. The sons of God who are those who fear God and love God, who believe in God. This seems to be the most biblical and true to the immediate context of our passage. And so the sons of God come from the godly seed, the line of Seth. And before Abraham's call, before Israel is called God's son, we have the sons of God, those who are God-fearers from the line of Seth. And we'll see even further the significance of the line of Seth later on in the sermon. But these sons of God, this godly seed, these believers in God, take the daughters of men and intermarry. Godly seed marries ungodly seed, giving birth to wickedness, more wickedness and violence upon the earth. But God was long-suffering and patient with the evil and wickedness of men. At verse 3, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Man is flesh, says God. And God will not strive with them because they are evil. And his days shall be 120 years. See, this is a pretty complicated passage of Scripture. What is meant by 120 years? Does this mean that God cuts short the lifespan of human beings from 900, 800 years old to 120 years old? Well, even following the flood, people were living 400, 500 years. In fact, the only person that lives 120 years is Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. But I tend to agree with Luther and Calvin who believe that this 120 years refers to God's reprieve. That is, God holds back the delay or delays punishment and judgment upon the people. From the time God sees man in their wickedness, in their flesh, in their evil, he says, I'm going to not dwell with man in the same way forever. In 120 years, I will cut them off. So from this time to the time of the flood, 120-something years. God will delay his judgments until he judges with a flood. We need to be careful not to take this interpretation as the law. It's hard to determine. It's a hard passage. We, we have to confess that and realize that. 
But the significant part is in verses 5 to 8 that the Lord sees the corruption of mankind. He sees it and he grieves it. The Lord saw the corruption of mankind. Verse 5. After having given an account in verses 1 to 4, just prior to the flood, or the calling of Noah to build the ark for the, the coming of the flood, we have verses 5 to 8. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Quite literally, literally, the Lord saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil the whole day. Every imagination, every thought of the intention of his heart was evil only continually the whole day long. Mark Twain once wrote, we are all like the moon. We have a dark side we don't want anybody to see. God sees. God sees the corruption of man. He sees the corrupt deeds, and he sees the corrupt mind and intentions of man. He sees the whole man. It's easy to hide one's intentions. One can come across as being merciful and kind and gentle, but inwardly, one's intentions can be evil, spiteful, vengeful, passive-aggressive. But God sees all of it. He sees the corrupt deeds. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Their ways were known. Their violence was seen upon the earth. There is no fear of God and His law in the people. And it's manifesting itself in violence. <laughs> Have you seen the news lately? Have you watched the images of violence and hatred toward God and the Christ? Once again, once again, this is a spiritual war. This is hatred toward the anointed one, the Christ. There's a hatred towards life and ultimately the giver and author of life. And we're seeing violence and hatred toward God. There's only an appetite for evil and wickedness and these corrupt deeds are exposed before God. He sees it. He sees the corruption. And he sees that the corruption, these corrupt deeds, stem from a corrupt heart, a corrupt mind. For that's where these evil deeds come from, ultimately. They come from the corruption of our hearts. 
The inner man and woman is corrupt, and the true intentions of man's heart is evil continually. Did you notice that in the text? Not sometimes. Sin has so corrupted man's nature that apart from grace, apart from the grace of God, we can do nothing spiritually good. Lord's Day 2, question and answer 5. Can you live up to God's law perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. That is man by nature. And this is why I said this morning that we can't legislate morality. There needs to be an inner working of God and His grace to restore sinners to Himself. The mind of human beings has become so corrupt, blind, and darkened in understanding. And this is what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following. The way of the Gentiles is a corrupt way, ignorant in their understanding, in their mind. My, oh my, how I remember my pre-Christian life. I can say this. I think my wife would be okay with it. She'd probably be like, uh-oh. But when I became a Christian, her family wondered whether I became a Christian for her. And one of the first things Carrie would tell them is, there's no way Roberto changed himself. No way that he can change himself in that way. God did a mighty work of grace. Praise be to God. And that is exactly true for each one of you who calls upon the name of the Lord. God sees your wickedness, your motive. He sees your deeds. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to every man, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Beloved, every man, every woman, every child is laid naked and exposed before God. He sees the corruption of mankind, and he saw it in that day. If you're taking notes, we don't have time to read it now, but Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, that is a classic passage. If you, want to, if you want to see what man does with the corruptness of their mind and heart on how it's manifested with their hands, their deeds, how they deny the truth about God and suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. I often think sometimes maybe Paul is thinking back to this period in history, just before the flood, when he was writing Romans 1, 18-32. So the Lord saw the corruption of mankind And secondly, the Lord was sorry that he made man, verse 6. 
And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. To be translated, the Lord was sorry that he had made man, and grieved in his heart. For several reasons, this too is a complicated text of scripture. For several reasons, it's very challenging. First of all, because God doesn't need to be sorry for sin, for he knows no sin. He is light. He does not dwell in darkness. He is pure good. So how can God have regrets? How can God be sorry for something that he ordained to be or come to pass? That's the question. And how do you reconcile that question with God's immutability? That is God's nature, that he is unchangeable. God is not like man that he should change his mind. Well, doesn't it seem like he changes his mind here? He's sorry, he regrets. Some translations have repent. He repented, he he turned from his will of wanting to have men multiply on the earth? How do we reconcile such a description of God's feelings and his unchangeable nature? The Bible teaches indeed that God is immutable or unchangeable. He is not like man that he should change his mind. His will is perfect. He is sovereign. And he is not like man that he is affected by emotions or feelings. God grieves because he grieves sin. For example, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's in the context of living according to the sinful nature. Why then does the Bible say that God regrets making man on earth? You see, friends... When we work through a narrative genre of Scripture, Genesis is a narrative. There's a storyline in Genesis. And it's important here that in a narrative, like most narratives, that it isn't teaching about the character of God. Rather, it's pointing to the fact that God hates sin and is grieved by it. Moses is communicating to us in such a way to point to the one who created us and who is grieved by our sin. And he's using human traits, human analogies, what's called anthropomorphisms, ascribing to God human traits or characteristics, human feelings, to explain to us how God responds to sin. You see, God is incomprehensible, yet he is knowable. God communicates himself in human words. And if God's incomprehensible, how can you communicate an incomprehensible God in human words? The scriptures help us understand only dimly how God is responding to the corruption of mankind. Using figurative language, 
to help us understand God's actions in the course of human history. Because God indeed is a personal God. He's a relational God. But he's not swayed by emotions or feelings. He does not change his mind. This text is stating to us that God hates sin and is grieved by it. Some liberal theologians have used a passage like this to teach that God is becoming. Just like a child grows up, becomes an adult, but makes mistakes along the way. The child is never left becoming an adult, growing in maturity. God, too, is becoming. Not at all. So you need to be careful with narrative passages like this because Moses isn't trying to teach us the character of God. Moses is trying to teach us how God is responding to corruption upon the earth and his grief towards sin and rebellion because the crown jewel of his creation plunged himself and herself into darkness and death and sin. God is not becoming God is being. God has a nature, an eternal being. He does not become something. He is. He is. He is unchangeable. And His will is perfect. So God grieves in His heart because of His love. He grieves. And then verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Thirdly, the Lord chose to blot out all mankind. He does not tolerate evil and sin. Evil and wickedness do not go unpunished because God is just. His justice demands that evil and wickedness be or receive its due reward. And in this case, it's God's judgment. But I have a question for you and me. I have a question. Perhaps you thought of this when you were going, working through the passage or reading the passage. By what standard or law did God measure the hearts and actions of mankind? By what standard or law does God measure man's heart and actions? The Apostle Paul writes that the law was given to Israel. Why? To expose sin. Law is for the sinner to expose and reveal the sin. Where there is no law, there is no sin. So this is before the Ten Commandments were given. Early on in Genesis, even Lord's Day 2 asked, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. Well, the Ten Commandments weren't given yet. How can God judge man if there's no law to declare them their guilt? And this is where Paul also speaks in Romans about the law of God written on every human heart. 
Every human being has the law of God written on their heart. And it is that law that condemns and judges them. There were many generations from the time of Adam to Noah. And many generations of wickedness and evil persisted on the earth. But God was slow to anger. He was patient. Slow to wrath. But His patience came to an end when God saw the rebellion over and over and over again. Their continual rebellion. And God chose to blot out all mankind. The rainwaters and the great flood will be servants of God's judgment upon the earth. Purging creation. Purging the earth of man's wickedness and rebellion against God. And it is man's heart that condemns him. The law of God on man's heart that condemns him. And even the animal life and the plant life will be exterminated and blotted out because mankind's corruption and sin. The crown jewel of God's creation made a mess of things. We've made a mess of things. And consequently, the creation became subject to corruption itself, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So God saw the corruption of mankind. God was sorry that He made man. God chose to blot out all mankind according to His justice. Because of their rebellion and hatred toward God, their violence on the earth, their corruption of mind and deeds. But in all the earth, in all the earth, there's one man that God bestows His favor and grace upon. You see, God saw mankind in His corruption. Now God sees a man whom He placed His favor on, The Lord saw the faith of Noah. Noah has faith because the Lord found favor in him. Favor is is the same word for grace. The Lord had grace. Showed his grace to Noah. And Noah is in the line of Seth. Verse 8. But Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, God grieved in his heart the corruption of man, but there was one man who was of the line of Seth, the godly seed, who found favor with God, and his name is Noah. Noah means comfort. God will comfort Noah and his family and save his family in the flood, commanding Noah to build an ark. They will be saved through the ark. Noah will be a comfort himself to people in subsequent generations because he trusted and obeyed the Lord. God preserved the seed of the woman through Noah. Friends, in a narrative like this, we need to look at the big picture. What is the big picture? And the big picture in Genesis is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
And if God wiped out everyone, including Noah and his family, would God be true to his promise? No. And so he saves the seed of the woman, the line of Seth, Noah, whose name is Comfort. That's the big picture. That's why in Genesis, many interpreters and Bible scholars outline the book of Genesis according to that phrase, and these are the generations of. It's called the Toledot. The Toledot is Hebrew for these are the generations of. And the generations are so important in Genesis because it always has to bring us back to the seed, the seed of promise, the Christ. The Christ. God displays his grace toward Noah and saves him and his family. In the great chapter of faith, throughout the course of redemptive history, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events, events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah received a righteousness outside of himself, a righteousness of God that comes through faith in the coming seed. Christ had not come yet, but he trusted in God and God's promise the promise of the Messiah who is of the line of Seth. In the greater context of Genesis, Moses follows the seed of the woman throughout. And the key figures in in God's plan of salvation history are noted throughout Moses' writings. God preserving and saving His people saving that line, that seed, until the Christ comes, the King comes. Even in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, even when we see the exile of Judah, of Israel, especially of Judah, where we see there that the king of Babylon did not kill the last king of Judah. Why? Because that would be the seed. That king is the seed to the Christ. And so God preserves throughout redemptive history, preserves through Noah, the seed who is the Christ. You see, it is God who promised the Savior to Adam and Eve. It is God who saved believing Noah and his family so that the promised Messiah would come from the line of Seth and Shem, Noah's son. It is God who called Abraham and made a covenant with him. It is God who called Israel his son, whom he loves. It is God who who promised the eternal kingdom and throne to David's seed, David's son. It is God who rescues us from the flood of God's judgment through the seed, Jesus Christ, and faith in his name. You see, at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the seed of a woman, in the likeness of sinful flesh, 
God condemned sin in the flesh, in the Son of God, so that we would be rescued from the flood of God's judgment. Because God could have left us in our misery and sin and condemned us to eternal judgment and hell. But He was rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. He loves us with an unfathomable love, an incomprehensible love. The love that He had for Noah is the love that He has for us. That He finds favor in us because He bestowed His grace upon us and granted us faith to believe in Him. Friends, through Christ we are saved from God's judgment upon the earth and our names will not be blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. Our names will never be blotted out because they are written in red, the blood of Jesus. Yes, we see in this passage that the Lord saw the corruption of mankind. Yes, we see in this passage that the Lord grieved in His heart the sin and wickedness of man. Yes, we see in this passage that He chose to blot out all mankind. But we see in this passage God's grace and mercy in saving Noah and his family. Because in doing so, He saved the seed, the Christ. And in saving the seed, the Christ, the people of God are redeemed by the blood of Christ and saved eternally. And there will be a new heavens and new earth. This heavens and this earth in which we live will be purged by fire. There will be no more flood. God promised that. And He gave us the sign of a rainbow. Let's say it, people, a rainbow. Let's take back the rainbow. What do you say? My wife and I were walking in the parking lot. We recently saw a rainbow. We were just talking about that. We need to recapture the rainbow. God's promise in the sky. But God's promise to us is stitched in red. The blood of Jesus. Who cleanses us from all of our sins. And saves us. Delivers us. From our sin and misery. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we come before you humbled because you are so gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. You are slow to anger. In your justice, you could have wiped out Adam and Eve in the garden after the first sin. But you chose, according to your great love and your infinite wisdom, to promise a seed. The seed of the promise, the Christ. To save corrupt human beings. And not to leave us in our corruption, in our misery, but to pluck us out of the miry clay, to pluck us out of that wickedness and sin and corruption and place us into a right relationship with you so that we are counted righteous in your sight. We are cleansed and made new 
in the beloved, the Lord Jesus. In Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new is come. And this is all of your grace. And no one can blot us out of your book, O God. Because Jesus paid it all, shed his precious blood. And you have granted us your spirit to walk in that newness of life. To put to death the deeds of wickedness and evil. To be transformed in the renewing of our minds. And as the catechism says and teaches, oh, we make small steps of obedience day by day. For you, O Lord, are doing a work in us by your Spirit and your mercy and grace. Oh, Father, help us in this present evil age to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us in this present evil age to look to Christ alone and to proclaim Christ crucified and risen, to call people to repentance and faith in Christ, lest they too should perish and fall. This is the reality. In Jesus' name we pray.